Welcome back to The Secret Life of Leaders, where you get unprecedented access to the inner workings of Australia's leading thinkers and practitioners at the forefront of environmental, social and governance change. The cutting edge of change can often feel lonely, but you're not alone here. The Secret Life of Leaders rehumanizes the experience of life and leadership and creates a platform for us all to learn and grow together. Let's dive in. Professor Cheryl Desha is theme leader for the City's Research Institute's Digital Earth and Resilient Infrastructure Research Agenda and a professor within the School of Engineering and Built Environment at Griffith University. She co-leads Griffith University's Disaster Management Network and directs their Disaster and Resilience Management Facility. She also sits on the Queensland Disaster Research Alliance. Cheryl was awarded Engineers Australia's Queensland's Professional Engineer of the Year in 2021 and in 2020 was awarded the Queensland Government's Individual Champion of Change Award by the Inspector General Emergency Management. With the reality that everything is connected, Cheryl is working towards resilient and regenerative cities through enabling evidence-based decision-making that is locally relevant. This involves industry and government partnerships to deliver right time and right place decision support within the context of disaster management. She's a fellow and chartered member of Engineers Australia and a council member of the International Society of Digital Earth, where she co-leads the Industry Partnerships Working Group. She is also an advisory board member for the United Nations Global Geospatial Information Management. Welcome to The Secret Life of Leaders, Professor Cheryl Desha. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. I've been looking forward to this conversation, but let's start at the very beginning. And that is, what should we understand by and about the concepts of resilient communities and resilient infrastructure? Such a good question, Angela. And I'll take off my lecturer hat and put on my personal Cheryl hat and say the way I answer that question is through knowing who I am. So when I think of resilient communities, resilient infrastructure, I think of it through the lens of being an environmental engineer. So for me, it's about how human beings and the environment intersect. And resilience in that context for me is about ensuring that human beings are able to ensure quality of life for themselves and for the other critters around while also doing what we do as we go about life on planet Earth. I'm also half Indian and half Welsh. So I have a bit of a global context to that resilience conversation by my lived experience as a, as a little tucker. So I've grown up with a lot of nature around me and I'm inspired by nature in thinking that resilience does not mean bigger, fatter, wider, stronger, as my traditional 20th century engineering education would tell me. It's actually about being flexible, adaptive, attuned, and sensitive to the systems and the context that we're in. So I love that because that just provides me with such a playground to think about ideas going forward and how we can bring that to our communities and our infrastructure. I love that. Flexible, adaptive, attuned to the systems in which we live. That's beautiful. Fancy work called biomimicry, which is innovation inspired by nature. So it, it comes from that. Yes, and embracing all of the complexity of those organic natural interactions and bringing it into our communities and into our built world. I love it. Nice. Thank you for that beautiful explanation that really puts us in good territory. 
I'm curious about the impact that you're desiring to have in the world and why you're so passionate about it. And perhaps you can tell us a little bit about, you know, this global orientation that you're bringing and this fascination with the natural environment and how it's led you to this place in your career and the way you contribute today. Yeah, sure. So I did grow up in Mauritius, which is a little tiny country off the coast of Madagascar, where my father comes from, Indian by blood, Mauritian by birth. So growing up there, there was a lot of quick feedback for me growing up in seeing what people do to the places around them and then what that then has as consequences. So I have a pretty vivid memory when I was about 11 of being there over Christmas, New Year, when we went back for a holiday. We'd immigrated to Australia when I was six. So holiday, parties, amazing festivities going on, loving the culture, and then taking a walk the next morning along that same beach and seeing the Coke cans and the plastic bags being taken out on the tide of this beautiful reef and just knowing that the fish and the coral were there. And it's one of those moments that sort of burnt itself into the deep parts of my brain and I I couldn't let go. I think then as I studied through university, environmental engineering made a lot of sense in terms of being able to do something about those interactions between people and place. So there that took me through environmental engineering. Then I went into consulting And while I was at Arab, I bumped into a bunch of young professionals, Charlie Hargroves, Nick Pelusis, Peter Stasinopoulos, and Michael Smith. And we ended up banding together as like the Beatles of the 21st century doing sustainability. Like we thought we were the hippest hip, you know, that there was. And we went about writing textbooks, because that's what you do when you're feeling hipster, writing textbooks on what's possible for sustainable development. We were so frustrated as emergent scientists and engineers into the marketplace that people weren't taking it seriously in terms of what was going on that we could see. So yeah, we spent nearly 10 years writing textbooks on what's possible, but not us, just getting, I think in the end, we probably amassed maybe three, 400 mentors from around the planet across those books of taking what was in their back pocket that they really needed to get out and helping them to put that into a place where people could read it. So we're pretty proud of that. And I think the longevity of those books has made us feel really satisfied as other things haven't gone so well with planet and decision-making that we know that some really good content informing policy and planning can make a difference, whether it's China or Germany or Australia. Mm. So that's been, that's been a lot of fun in having that global influence and always pretty much my whole life being based in Southeast Queensland. Mm, What a story. Let me try and wrap up. I hear different things in this to perhaps what our audience is going to hear, but from a leadership perspective, I hear that there was quite an intimately personal experience or mission driving your curiosity for this area of sustainable development and then the passion behind it where you collected like-minded people and then threw the net wide open to these three, 400 mentors and said, who's on board? And this was 20 years ago before no one was on board. Without the internet. Well, and I think internet internet. internet was just emerging, but we spent many days up at two o'clock in the morning ready to call them on a telephone with one of those curly cords to capture what they were about to say. Yes, not too long ago, but, you know, we're talking 2004, 2005, yeah. Just in case there are any young people listening, without the internet or a mobile phone where the phone was still connected to the wall and you could not see the other person on the end of the phone, 
what a feat, what a creative feat. But the elements of this as being purpose-driven and then throwing the net open wide for a collaborative effort, I think from a leadership perspective and how do we really mobilise action quickly, I think they're two really important elements. And now today... You're helping communities, I imagine, perhaps you'll explain this better than me, plan for and recover more effectively from disasters. And, you know, as we've been discussing offline, I've recently done some work around assessing or facilitating a process where lots of clever people are assessing climate change risk to Australia. But your portfolio is broader than that when it comes to community resilience and infrastructure resilience. So I kind of want to know what you're doing in this space right now, what your biggest wins have been, the difference that you're making in this space today. Thanks, Angela. So I think to start by saying I spend my day in two minds and they jump back and forth. Dad's an engineer, mum's an occupational therapist. So one half of my brain says people are amazing, power to the people, let's give people choice and enable them. And the other half of my brain says design people out of the picture because they inherently make really silly decisions. They're not quite sure what's going on and they're too busy to care about the mundane stuff that actually can make a difference for the environment. So these things toss and turn in my head every day. It's a very busy headspace, unfortunately, as a result. But what it's drawn me to in the end is to play in a space of decision support for leaders. So I spend most of my time thinking about how we can empower leaders to literally hang in there as we now run this road, pretty predictable road of the next 10, 20 years at least, but probably more like the next half century of dealing with adversity while also still attempting to bring our planetary ecosystem context back into health. So while we attempt to deal with our greenhouse gas emissions and um, restore biodiversity and other such very important goals, we're also addressing some pretty extreme catastrophes around flood, fire, sea level rise. When you bring those two together, it was a bit of a no-brainer for me to turn to the space of disaster management. And in this magic window that we do have of this decade, use budgets and reserves that governments and private sector does have to take that disaster response and, well, prevention, preparedness, response and recovery is often talked about as the four things to think about. It's more complicated than that, but it's a nice wayfinder. So using budgets now well to be dealing with disasters in a way that's also embedding resilience measures into our communities and infrastructure is super important and timely for me this decade. I don't think that chance lasts forever because we erode our base of reserve funds as we dig deeper each time we have a disaster to help the next lot. So that's really important for me at the moment. And our decision makers are all, well, perhaps not all, I hear a lot of leaders talking about personal fatigue and professional fatigue. And when our leaders start talking about their preferred handicap on the golf course and how quickly they're going to get out, my selfish efficiency brain says, ah, you still got some hours on the clock that you can contribute here because your knowledge of the system, uh, whether it be government leadership or disaster emergency leadership, then let's use that 
for a little bit longer, please. So having decision makers hang in there and having our emergent decision makers stay there for the long haul over this next decade is really my passion. So that's to close that off. That's about ensuring that there's a space for people to think well, which often means creating a space for people to learn, inquire, and talk with each other. So I find myself running executive education as well as being involved in projects, research projects that involve a lot of surveys and interviews where I get to speak with these folk and in a very much an action research context. Mm. So the topic could be quite varied, but that's what's underpinning the decisions that our research team makes about what we do next. Mm. Lots in that. The parts that I'll pull out, I really like the opportunities created through action research for co-creation and capacity building. And I like that you're bridging the gap between the existing and the emergent decision makers and leaders with those decision support tools, I would imagine. And I'd be interested in your observations of how you see humans wrestling with this complexity. I see it from the personal and leadership development perspective, what happens on the inside of a human and what it requires of them to stay on the playing field when they're holding and wrestling with so much complexity. And I'm just wondering what you see as you bring uh, warm humans, some of them, you know, the cleverest in the country into this space and see them wrestle with the complexity of the challenge. What do you notice? Well, you're asking an engineer who's just done a little bit of behavioral psychology research in PhD about capacity building. So I'm a bit dangerous because I say things that I have to remember I'm coming from an engineer, not a psychology or or any other medical background. But what I what I observe in this space is a wrestling of by the individual, a wrestling with the context of knowledge. So someone might be working in a corporate or a department in government and know that they have data and information that can make a huge difference, literally save lives. And they're caught up by red tape and or IP and or privacy rules and regulations, all of those have legitimacy and there's contexts where we need to be creative about flexibility, I think. And they're caught up by that to the point where they can't actually use that to make a difference. So I see highly frustrated leaders who know that their data could make a difference and can't or know that their processes could but can't. And I also see folk really struggling with having knowledge siloed. And we talk about that a lot. It's one of those things that everyone says, oh, we live in a silo and this doesn't get to there and that doesn't happen. But there are a few different types of leadership that I've observed where some of our colleagues are very distributed in their sharing of knowledge freely and that really enables things to happen. And I see other colleagues around who, for whatever reason, keep the knowledge contained and nature doesn't tend to do that. If you look at natural systems for inspiration, there's a lot of sharing is caring in nature. Nature can be pretty ruthless, but generally things are shared rather than contained in that context of being community. Mm. So that intrigues me. Mm. Yeah, it's a thorny problem because the sharing and application of that information, we could make better decisions and see more tangible and rapid action. And then there's human nature to contend with and some of the protectionist strategies that we apply to preserve qualities that we see important for our survival as humans. And they don't always work 
together, do they? Yeah. I mean, a tangible example is early access to data on emergency response where there might be some aerial photography or satellite data that could be immediately useful to do quick counts for the insurance sector to know who who needs help from their customer base. And likewise, from the insurance sector, you know, data about their customers' well-being might be the medical health sector where it would really help first responders to know how to door knock appropriately so that people weren't really scared by the experience or that they might be in a back room and not able to get to the door and then the house is classed as being empty when in fact there is someone in there that needs rescuing. So these we're talking about very tangible systems of data that across the health sector and the insurance sector and the emergency response sector, if we just deal in the response context, that's super important. For longer term preparedness work, you know, there's similar examples of the tangible nature of data that could be shared. So people knowing the height of their house in terms of the flood height, where it makes a difference. So it's okay if your property is flooded, perhaps, but if it gets over the threshold of your front doorstep, even by one centimetre, all of a sudden the world can fall apart. So knowing that level is actually really critical. How do we have our citizens get that for their houses and then feed it to their insurance and also feed it to local government? You know, that would make such a huge difference for us to do really smart planning and yet those knowledge spheres or areas just aren't integrated yet. That really intrigues me as an, as a researcher. So when we talk decision support, that's the kind of decision support problem that we're working on. Mm, I understand. Thank you for that very tangible, practical example. And I know, you know, a lot of we're we're both in Southeast Queensland, so anyone who's experienced a flood here would be really connecting with that. Thank you. When we're thinking about the increased likelihood of these extreme weather events and the impacts on our communities and, and environment, built and natural. What are the encouraging signs of change? What are the, the hopeful, optimistic signs of change? I'll talk personally from my, you know, local community and practice base because I think it's a really exciting example. So here in Queensland, heaven forbid, we have quite a parochial nature, but at the same time over in the academic sector, so across the seven public universities and a private university in Queensland, it does a lot of heavy lifting in research and capacity building for workforce. And so several years ago, we thought, you know what? We're all effectively one and the same in terms of we're basically departments. We're all publicly funded. So what's this corporate style resistance about collaboration and working together? So we fashioned a Team Queensland Disaster Research Alliance, which subsequently has become the Queensland Disaster Research Alliance. And we're making it up as we go along from the, the first steps of having the universities contribute to just running an administrative role for that group. That alliance is there to build the muscle power of universities to work together on complex problems. So it's a really different front door for industry and government to come to through the Inspector General Emergency Management because they have what's called a research advisory panel. So that panel brings together the stakeholders and they come up with all these great priorities about what should be researched. But meanwhile, on the other side of the table, the universities have been quite individual in their perspectives on what could be done to address those challenges. So now we have a muscle building engine that's dedicated to matchmaking. I'm half Indian, so that's no brainer for me. Dedicated to matchmaking researchers across those universities to work together and developing their experiences in doing that. I think that's magic because 
the propensity for people to make a difference when they're working together is so much greater than inside those individual institutions. And I think that's a great signal if, gosh, if academics can do it, and I count myself of one of the cats that people often herd, you know, talk about herding cats, if we can do it, then other sectors can absolutely do it. And we see roundtables and great examples of alliances. Griffith University has the Climate Alliance through the Climate Action Beacon of corporates who are banding together. So that gives me hope. I think there are human beings who have gone above and beyond their professional roles and their professional context to say, let's just get this done. So when we say community, in my head, it's where we live as place-based community. It's also where we work as professional community. So community for me wraps all of that in. So I love communities of practice that just get around and get things done. Beautiful. I'm loving this conversation. I know my audience will be as well because they're wrestling with problems of similar complexity and scale. And I love the expression of building the muscle to work on complex problems around you know, convening people, integrating the data, genuine collaboration and co-creation. And you're right, it is a muscle that we haven't been, I think, historically, you know, we've worked in silos, we've validated our identity and our contribution and our sources of funding and our industry and government connections based on those silos because it strengthens our identity. And now we realise Long ago, we realized we needed to outgrow that model, but it requires different parts of our humanity to be able to collaborate and hold space for that complexity and wrestle with concepts respectfully and have our ideas like really generously contribute our ideas and then have them challenged and sometimes picked apart and put back together in a different shape and Yeah, this expression of building muscle to work on complex problems is possibly one that you'll hear me use. Yeah, Yeah, we we call ourselves a muscle building, you know, arm of that ecosystem. Yeah, for sure. Feel free. And, you know, that context for me is a bit borrowed from psychology where we talk about, you know, growing up and you start off being very dependent and then you go through this teenage years of going, I know who I am, I've got my identity, I'm independent. And we have all these my brain goes a little bit towards capitalist as a describing word for that system of I'm here, hear me roar, and this is what I'm going to do, and this is what my company is going to do, and this is what my university is going to do. And then we get to a point where we think, oh, well, we can do that really well, but it's a little bit boring because we just keep talking it well, unless you're super egotistical, people like talking about themselves, but like to, you know, perhaps do something more. And we get into that interdependent phase. So the muscle building work of the QDRA, the Queensland Disaster Research Alliance, is about that interdependence maturity conversation. And I think that's why the universities are also loving it because it's a maturing of the research agenda to what one of my mentors, Professor Cordia Chu, would say, to be useful, usable and used. Like it's got to be all those three in in my world of doing research. If it's not those three, then you don't really affect much change. So that's exciting to be making a difference there, knowing that we're growing leaders. So that's my, you know, my life passion is grow leaders. In growing leaders, you have fantastic adventures and you're also by default ensuring a succession plan. So the growing leaders who get multidisciplinary, transdisciplinary, 
into university research and the ability for that to be useful, usable and used, well, that's my utopia. Hear all of those words come together in one podcast. I know so many people are going to feel bolstered, grounded and resonant by that collection of concepts coming together and the maturity, the maturing of what what it truly means to serve, I believe. So thank you for combining that so eloquently. I hate to leave the positive and take us towards the negative, but I'm curious. The more I speak to people working in fields of sustainability, the more I become curious about this from the perspective of human nature. And that's, you know, you've been initiating these conversations for, without giving away anybody's age, you know, more than 20 years and to varying levels of understanding and uptake and action taking as a result. I'd like to know how you stay committed, passionate, inspired and inspired in this space given the fairly slow progress? Such a good question. You're full of good questions, Angela. I'm not always that way. I think I have my own dips and rises in that roller coaster. I have to say moving in 2016, I was at a pretty profound low point professionally in knowing what was coming, reading the tea leaves, you know, having written the books and basically specked out what would happen if we didn't do XYZ and we basically haven't done XYZ. The prognosis is pretty clear and it's rolling out in front of us now. So in 2016 when I chose made an active personal choice to move to disaster management, part of me felt like I'd failed, profoundly failed in the sustainability agenda. And that took some wrestling with because moving from the passionate enabler of sustainable development initiatives and energy efficiency initiatives in particular with the Energy Efficiency Council. They're fantastic. Stepping away from that and saying, I'm going emergency response and getting in the trenches with dealing with the disasters felt for me like I was giving up and I was just dealing with the collateral of what was coming. And so it took a few years and the building project at Griffith sounds hilarious, but I'm an engineer and I really at some point in my life wanted to be part of physically building something. So I got asked to come back to Griffith from QUT to be the academic lead for N79, which is Nathan Campus building number 79. And in that process, it was the project manager for the building, Ian Bacon, who was 30 years in the SES. And he said to me over one of our really early meetings, and the building was just a budget at that point, and we were standing on the site, and he said, you know, don't just stand here, think about where we are. We're 10 minutes from the CBD. We've got a hospital right beside us. We've got football fields. We're on a hill. We're surrounded by state forests, but not too close in on the building. And we can see 1 William Street by the time the building's finished, which is our you know main building in Brizzy, where all our government colleagues sit. What does that inspire for you? And we had the most amazing series of conversations around his emergency response work and what he could see as a volunteer that he could see about what wasn't working and what was working in helping people be better prepared. I said, okay, well, as we design this building to be teaching and learning, which is what I got asked to do for engineering and built environment, let's co-design in a disaster and resilience management facility that helps people plan, prepare, 
and if push comes to shove, actually activate that space to do good work. And I think that helped me on that roller coaster get out of that dip and start to, you know, do the next up and over. And the floods that you mentioned just before, Angela, last year, they're pretty full on. And Red Cross, we had signed an MOU with as part of that journey with the facility to say we're up for this, let's do it. Red Cross, state government, it all helped in the design of it. We, By the way, we got the building done at zero net extra cost for that facility because we just designed it well and did a lot of upfront, you know, front-end loaded the risk assessment process and stakeholder engagement. Good grief. Basically just did what we should do. So with that facility, Red Cross activated there because their Milton site got flooded. They couldn't get down to the Gold Coast because the M1 was impacted for their business continuity plan, said go to Gold Coast. They couldn't. So we used our building as the activation space. And as a researcher, for me, that was a career highlight because it meant I was one step away from frontline in enabling them to set up and continue to run 23 evacuation centres in southeast Queensland because they could all gather and work well in the space that we designed. And that was a highlight moment. So Mm -hmm. that that was a five-year bridge between, pardon the engineering pun, but a five-year journey from being at a pretty all-time low about what to do to being feeling like I was useful and used in a good way as the facility was being used. So that gave me a lot of energy and I think I'm probably still firing on that energy thanks to Colin and the team from Red Cross to know that we can do that more in more places and with more people. So the facility is part of it, so the the physical space and Colin and the team and other colleagues, Ian McKenzie, former Inspector General Emergency Management, who's in his semi-retirement, is like, come on, Ian, a bit more, is mentoring many around that holding space in a conversation space to do the same thing. So it doesn't have to be physical, but we do have a facility and then we have these working conversations around projects to help people use research well. I'll try and, you know, perhaps crudely, but certainly summarize in layman's terms what I've heard there. And it started with this wrestling. And I hear it sometimes in my coaching practice or in workshops I facilitate where less than half of the room is still driven by a mitigation agenda. And the other three quarters of the room goes, dude, we passed that long ago. We've got to embrace the reality of where we're at and the evolution of this particular system that we're dealing with. And yeah, not seeing that as a personal failure or a giving up on the cause, but a coming to terms with the reality of it, I think is there's some relief and peacefulness offered there. And I love that you actually designed this really useful, usable used facility and lived into the values of sustainable design yourself, how refreshing, to actually be of genuine service to the community. And I think, you know, in the leaders that I coach, sometimes in the sustainability space and beyond, who feel like they've got nothing left in the tank, need to figure out a way to serve again, to allow that energy, if I can mix the woo with the work, that to allow that energy to start to flow through them again because they're otherwise feeling so, you know, depleted and fatigued. And I think, you know, the way you've described your experience of that journey is highly resonant with with what I'm seeing as well. I think when you say serve and when when we also say volunteer, perhaps some folk might think that that will take more energy. And I think it's about finding the way that you can serve and or volunteer 
finding the way that energizes you to do that. So it doesn't mean becoming exhausted. It actually can be perhaps it's the only energy tap in our lives at some points because the day job is so depleting at times. So I think that as when you ask the leadership question, Angela, I think finding place-appropriate ways to serve is super important. Yeah, thank you. And it reminds me of a conversation I was having with a mutual colleague yesterday around, you know, what motivates people to change patterns of thinking and behaviour. And we were talking about what seems to be a tension or has always been expressed as a tension between self-interest and the collective interest. And my perspective on this is when we are self-interested in a responsible, grounded, long-term, systemic way, rather than a hedonistic, how much can I get for me now, short-term way, then that leads us into alignment, greater alignment or greater opportunities for alignment with collective values. And sort of in the discussion yesterday, we were starting to wonder about the questions of how do we nurture that more responsible self-interest that also serves the collective. So... I'm going to give you one of those biomimicry, like, what are you talking about, Cheryl Moments? But for me, my brain thinks in pictures. And when I saw the New Orleans floods, which was, you know, actually before my personal professional transition to disaster management, but someone reminded me a little while later that when you look at the footage, you can see that the trees along the main street of New Orleans are still upright and the water's full on rushing past, like the velocity would have been crazy. It's like, how those guys stand up because biomimicry people ask these cool questions like oh well I don't know and pretty quickly you you ask an arborist someone who knows trees and they'll tell you that the root system of that particular species of tree is completely interconnected under the ground so that above the ground you see isolated trunks and treetops but underground it's a meshed system which is so strong that you can have a whole lot of turbulent change happening above ground and they will withstand it because they're sharing the load. Hmm. I wonder what we could learn from that as human beings. Biomimicry, what can we learn from nature? And perhaps without becoming political, but it's topical at the moment. It's what our First Nations people have been telling us for thousands of years and we're sorry we're late, but we're listening now, right? We're late. Yeah. Relate to the body of thinking well and thinking long, indeed. So, Cheryl, as we begin to move towards the end of our conversation, I'm really curious about how you have personally focused on or improved your own self leadership over the years to manage yourself better in this, you know, career evolution, the evolution of your contribution, your thought leadership. How have you learned to manage yourself better over the years? maybe a few points. So firstly, when I cottoned onto the fact that I could actually serve by growing leaders, that settled into my head quite fundamentally. And when the attention's not on me, I find that I can lead better, rarer, <laughs> better, rarer. So growing leaders and having, so actively for me, that means mentoring folk in my own organisation. So I do that. We have a book club, monthly book club, where we commit midday, fourth Thursday of every month, ship in Brisbane. We turn up and there's a book that might run for one or two months about women in leadership. 
and we have about 100 people who are connected through LinkedIn, maybe three people turn up or six, doesn't matter. That's the whole point. It's you turn up because you turn up. So sometimes I eat lunch by myself. Other times there's a crowd of us. So that setting up of that informal community would be the second one. And the third one for me professionally, I think, is literally nurturing research. So I have generally around 12 PhD students. I'd love to have 15 if everyone's interested in signing up for one. I have a ticket to give out PhDs. How crazy is that? Someone gave me a license to give these things out. Three-year journey. Who would be crazy enough to take that on? So every PhD, while my life gets busy, you know, running courses and signing paperwork and trying to figure out budgets, there are crazy critter people that have dedicated three years of their lives that are working around me on these really deep think problems. And so if ever I have a like sad sack moment, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's at least 12 awesome projects going on right now that I'm enabling. It's not my project, it's their project, but being able to think into. So those human beings force me to think deeply about half a dozen times a week. You know, we meet every fortnight, so it's six a week. So that regular, that last one would be having forced, enforced regular times of deep thinking. Mm. Whatever that means for you in whatever, you know, sector you're in, for me it's tackling gnarly research problems because it just gets the head into a really healthy exploratory mode and that feeds me. I always feel good after that, at reviewing papers, getting into that headspace. People have told me it's like meditating when when you get into that flow and I, that setting that up so I have to do it at least half a dozen times a week I think is good for my brain. Almost a lost art of deep thinking and focused time where we dive deep and not distracted by technology or other things. So thank you for those examples, growing leaders, nurturing your community and then nurturing research through deep thinking, beautiful examples. Cheryl, I'll take this opportunity to thank you so much for your generous time, of course, but the way you've so generously shared and made connections between the concepts that we've discussed that have certainly I've learned so much about the integration of natural systems and built environments and humanity amongst that and potentially with a few signposts of how to navigate it. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the time to share. You're welcome. I feel so inspired and encouraged by this conversation with Professor Cheryl Desher. There are things that, in my opinion, set her apart as a leader in the sustainability space, and here are just some of them. It's her ability to combine the linear and systematic thinking, the hardcore engineering cognition, alongside the social dimensions of how humans interact in communities at work and at play, alongside the natural environment and the way she holds the complexity of all of those and so eloquently ties them together in a way that people, you know, can understand and interact with, I think is a really special skill set of the sustainability change leader. Add to that her willingness her programming even to be open and collaborative and cast the net wide in terms of inviting contribution and then taking action around that both through her authorship and also the infrastructure that they've built there at Griffith University to support the community especially in times of disaster. 
I also loved this notion of building the muscle of having complex conversations and solving complex problems. In my coaching practice and facilitation practice, I see participants wrestling with this, just not having that muscle properly built, flexed, matured in those settings can see us gravitate back towards simplicity and singularity and siloed approaches when really we want to be holding that net open and incorporating and holding all of that beautiful interconnected complexity. Finally, Cheryl's appetite for building leaders, nurturing community and deep thinking are skill sets that are well worth maintaining into the future. And as I say, this combination really sets her apart as a sustainability change leader for the modern world. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Secret Life of Leaders. Make sure you subscribe in your podcast app so you don't miss an episode. We would love for you to share this podcast with friends, family, or colleagues who might be interested and inspired by its content. You can follow me, Angela Koning, on LinkedIn or Instagram. And until next time, lead yourself well and everything else falls into place. <laughs>